two short readings. Turn with me first of all to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And verse 13. Isaiah 7 and verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now let's turn to Matthew and chapter 1. Verse 19. Well, we'll start at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to do, to, sorry, to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and she shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here we see in this passage in Matthew the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given to Isaiah around 710 BC. 700 years before Christ came, it was prophesied that a virgin would would conceive and give birth to a child. And you can understand something of Joseph's plight here, where suddenly he's betrothed, he's engaged to this woman, and he finds she's pregnant. Most men in that situation would not necessarily believe the word that when she came and says, well, an angel came to me. And God came to Joseph in a dream and confirmed all that he'd said and referred it back to that prophecy that was given 700 years ago. That the virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. And the prophecy that was given way back In Isaiah, if you read the rest of the passage, it's in the context of Israel rebelling against God. And it's a prophecy, it's part of a prophecy of the first 30 chapters of Isaiah, where what you have is oracle after oracle prophesying destruction, prophesying that the uh, Assyrian king would come and overrun the land, prophesying that judgment was coming against Israel and Judah, resulting in their removal from the land. It's, it's, those first 30 chapters of Isaiah are full of this judgment and destruction. And yet in the midst of it, God gives a promise. He gives a promise of renewal. He gives a promise of restoration. He gives a promise that a king would come and sort out all the issues. And in the midst of these, these oracles of destruction, we have these wonderful prophetic scriptures of Isaiah chapter 7 as we read, and then Isaiah chapter 9, which Hannah read to us this morning. Then Isaiah chapter 11, all prophesying of the Messiah coming, of the one who would come and redeem the nation. 
In the midst of national disaster, there is a voice of hope and promise. And in the same way, this same thought is reiterated in Joseph's dream. In the midst of his personal disaster, there is hope. Because the child that is conceived is the child that would bring salvation. A child that would redeem. A child that would, that would restore. A child that would bring everything into order. And for hundreds of years, prior to the coming of either Jesus or John the Baptist, the coming of the Messiah had been high on the agenda of the expectation of the Jews. Because ever since the Babylonian captivity, because what Isaiah prophesied and what Jeremiah prophesied came to pass in 604 BC, um, the Babylonians came and overran Jerusalem and took all the people into captivity. And all that had been prophesied came to pass. And in the mindset of the residents of Israel in the New Testament times, that captivity had never ended. And the expectations of the populace, the general populace, were that Messiah would come and end the captivity, restore the nation politically and spiritually, and bring in the rule of God. And if you were a first century Jew, this would be your expectation, given these prophecies, given the knowledge of these things that God had prophesied concerning this Messiah. Firstly, they would expect him to come and get rid of the Roman overlords. Israel had been under the domination of the Romans since Pompey in 63 BC got involved in the whole situation. If you know anything about the history of Rome, Pompey was an important figure who ultimately was over, overcome by Julius Caesar, who became the emperor, and the rest is history, as they say. But Pompey got involved in the situation. And the dynasty who had been ruling for a hundred years, the Hasmoneans, who were a priestly dom- uh, uh, dynasty, they were allowed to continue to rule over part of the kingdom as Roman vassals, but the rest the Romans ruled directly through a governor. And prior to the Romans, the regions had been dominated by the Greeks ever since the coming of Alexander the Great. And before them, the Medo-Persians. And before then, the Babylonians. And so Israel had been a subject nation since 604 BC for nearly 700 years. And the expectation of these people was that the Messiah would come and he would throw off these overlords and he'd set up a kingdom that would be free. And they were waiting, and they were waiting in expectation. And they were hoping that this Messiah who would come would come and do that and achieve all this. Secondly, they were looking for a Messiah who would come and re-establish purity of religion. And the Pharisees, this sect that come come up time and time again in the New Testament, and Paul, of course, was one of them, had arisen in the years since the captivity as a reform movement to lead the people back to obedience to the law. So that God would once more look with favor upon them, as he as promised in the covenant, and especially in Deuteronomy. And they were looking for this messianic figure who would come and restore God's people to, to obey in the law. So that the nation would be pure once more and would receive the blessing of God. And then thirdly, they were looking for this messianic figure to come and establish or reestablish the Davidic kingdom. The kingdom that David had originally been. Sure, they had a king. His name was Herod. If you know anything about, about Herod or about history or even from the Bible, Herod was not a great man. Firstly, he was an Edomite, not a Jew, so that was a bit of a problem, and he'd married into the royal family. 
Hello? (laughs) He'd married into the royal family. He was an Edomite. He was an outsider, but he'd married in. He also had several of his children killed because he thought they were um, uh, plotting against him. He had uh, several of his wives killed. He had lots of his family killed. In fact, somebody said it was better to be Herod's dog than to be Herod's children because they were better off being a dog in the family than in in one one of his children. He was not a good man. And so he was not the figure that they were hoping would be king over Israel. So they were looking for a new king who would come in the, from the line of David, their great king, the, the time of the highest point of the kingdom of Israel. They were looking for a king who would reestablish righteous rule in the land and justice. And all of this was around, was, was focused upon this Messiah that they were looking to, to, for to come. The getting rid of the Roman overlords, the re-establishing of purity in the nation, and the re-establishment of the kingdom. And so the New Testament expectations were freedom from pagan rule, a new purity of, and holiness for the nation, and a new king in the line of David. And into the midst of this ferment of expectation, in the midst of all of this that was going on in the mindset of the New Testament uh, people, the people around at the, at the time of Christ's birth, all of these Israelites were, had these expectations. And in the midst of these expectations, a young carpenter received an angelic visitation in a dream. And was told that his fiancée would give birth to one who would be called Emmanuel. Which means God with us. And the promise, you see, was not just that a man would come and rescue Israel. But that the very... God that they worshipped, El, Yahweh, would come and dwell in the midst of them. It's an incredible thing for this young carpenter to receive and understand. And if we go back to Isaiah in chapter 9, this image is developed further. Where a whole lot of other names are given to this expected Messiah. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor or in some versions Wonderful Counselor. Doesn't matter either way. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore. And the zeal. Do you know what the zeal is? God's holy enthusiasm will accomplish this. That was what was being prophesied. And that this Messiah who would come would not just be a man, but he would be the Father. He would be Almighty God. He would be the Prince of Peace. All of these titles given. And there was no doubt in the mind of Isaiah that the Messiah and the Almighty God were to be one and the same person. Why? Because salvation can only come from God. And in these verses, we have the promise of the incarnation. That the almighty God would come and dwell amongst us. That the creator of the universe would come and subject himself to the limitations of his own creation. 
that the one made in the one who made man in his image would come and lift the fallen image of man to become once more like God. It's incredible. And sometimes when we see the pictures of stables and wise men and all this, wonderful though they might be, we miss the point. And the point is this, that the almighty God came and allowed himself to be subjected to the limitations of the human body and to dwell amongst us for 30 odd years, to suffer as we suffer, and yet to raise us up to relationship with him. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Just one verse. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The word translated dwelt there. Is the word tabernacle or tent. And it actually means... God pitched his tent amongst us. But he pitched his tent. Behave yourself, Joshua. (laughs) He pitched his tent, not as a piece of canvas, but in a physical body. You'll remember how in the wilderness, Moses built a tent after the pattern showed to him on the mountain. And in it, he put the objects that would enable the people of Israel to approach him and to worship him. He put in this, this tent in the wilderness, the brazen altar, the laver, the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar of incense, and in the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant itself. And in the midst of this inner sanctuary, God turned up in something called the Shekinah glory. In other words, when Moses walked into that inner sanctuary... There was no natural light, but there was the glow of God's presence. The glory of God was there in the midst of the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. And Moses spoke with God face to face, looking upon his glory. And this is the image that John is picking up in these verses. John says that that's exactly how it was when Jesus came amongst us. The glory wasn't in a tent, it wasn't in the temple, it was in the physical body of the Lord himself. It was there that the full glory of God dwelt, though shielded by his humanity. It was there for all to see. And John says, when we looked on him, we beheld his glory. They looked at Jesus and they knew the glory of God was shining out from him. Just the same as Moses had seen in the tabernacle 2000, well, 1,500 years earlier. They looked and they didn't see a tent, they saw a man. But in the midst of that man, the glory of God was shining out. The full glory of God was manifested. Flip over to John chapter 2, verse 11. 
This is after the miracle of the wedding. And it says, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, the first way they saw his glory was by the things he did, the works he performed. And when God does works amongst us, we see his glory. We may not see it physically, but we see the glory of God revealed. When we see people come to faith, we see the glory of God revealed. When we see people healed, we see the glory of God revealed. When we see people set free, we see the glory of God revealed. And God wants to manifest his glory amongst us, just as he manifested it in Jesus when he came to earth. Because as we look upon his glory and gaze in wonder, so we adore and worship. He manifested his glory in the works that he did. He manifested his glory when he, Peter, James and John, went up the mountain. And you remember the story when they went up the Mount of Transfiguration. And there suddenly Jesus became seen in all his glory. The light of the glory of God shone out. And they were looking on in wonder. And Peter opens his mouth and puts his foot in it. But nevertheless, in that moment, they saw his glory. And John again is referring back, we saw it. This man wasn't just a man for us. Other people might have perceived him as just a man. But we knew who he was. Because we saw his glory. And in the third place he revealed his glory is on the cross. Jesus said, that he would glorify himself and glorify the Father through the cross. And when he went to the cross, when he was there, dying in our place, laying down his life and restoring our relationship with God, he showed the highest glory. Because he, the manifest God, was willing to lay himself down that you and I might be forgiven free from guilt, free from the power of the enemy, and coming back into relationship with the living God. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it was these attributes that were demonstrated in all that Jesus did. In grace, he reached out to humanity, both in his life and ultimately in his death. It was to proclaim the truth concerning himself and concerning God's salvation that he came. Okay, here's a test for you. What does truth mean? Anyone want to answer? Okay, to, to listen to God's commandment and obey them. Okay. What did you say, Angie? What's real. What's real. Angie says truth is what's real. Well, all that is true, of course. <laughs> 
Come on in. Come on in, Alex. Okay. That's which is true in accordance with facts or reality. Well, again, that, that's a kind of truth. But, but, but when you read the Gospel of John and the writings of John, you have to understand truth in a different way. Truth is a code word. Okay, you ready for this? Truth for John and for the writing of John is who Jesus is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And coming to the knowledge of the truth is coming to understand who he is. And not just understanding who he is, it's believing in him. And John constantly contrasts truth and deception, light and dark, love and hate. And all of these contrasts come in. And for John, truth, those who come to walk in the truth are those who have come to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and have put their trust in him. So that's John's definition of truth. It's not just eternal truth. It's just not what what isn't a lie. It's about understanding who Jesus is. Because Jesus revealed the truth about who God is. That's why Jesus is full of grace that reaches out and truth that reveals the Father. Full of grace and truth. So Emmanuel, this word, is about God coming amongst us to bring us back into relationship with himself. And the question for each one of us here, in the light of this, is how is your relationship with God? How is your relationship with God this morning? Because that's why Jesus came. He didn't come for a nice story. He didn't come so we could have picture um, postcards or cards to send to each other. He didn't come so we could have gifts. He didn't come just so we could have family time. All of those things may be nice. But he came to connect us with God. He came to reveal who God is. And he came to lift us from our lowly state back into relationship with him. How is your relationship with God this morning? Are you living daily in the good of that relationship? Are you enjoying daily the grace of God in your life? If you are, then you're living as Jesus designed you to live. If you're not, then there's opportunity to turn it round, to change it, and to begin to be all that he's called you to be and all that he's lifted you to be. You see, when Jesus came, he didn't fulfill the messianic expectations that were upon him that we talked about at the beginning. He didn't cast off pagan rule. Although one day, a day is coming, when he returns, when all rulers will be subject to him. He didn't bring purity and holiness to the nation of Israel. Instead, he brought these to the whole world, and especially to those who believe in him. He didn't come to re-establish the throne of David, but one day he will sit on David's throne and rule over the whole earth. Instead, he came as a man in human form. God packaged as a man in order to lift us up to God and to undo all the effects of the fall. And to finish, I just want to read Philippians in chapter 2.
Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. That's what it's about. Jesus coming, laying aside his majesty, coming and humbling himself, that he might take us and lift us up into glory. So as you think about things this Christmas, remember, it's not just about a baby in a manger. It's about the wonder of God becoming man, that we might become like God again. Amen. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for coming amongst us. We thank you, Lord God, for revealing your glory. And we pray, Lord God, that we might go into this Christmas with a sense of your glory amongst us. Be with us, Lord, over this period. May we enjoy family time. May we enjoy all the good things. But may we never forget that you are our saviour. Amen.